Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Lane, a host of the channel. It's become a truism that work has become less secure and more precarious for a widening swath of American workers. Why and how this has happened, and what workers can and should do about it, is the subject of a wide-ranging new book, Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary, by Viking Press 2018. In Temp, Lewis Hyman, professor and director of the Institute for Workplace Studies at Cornell University, presents a detailed history of the unraveling of steady work. Hyman acknowledges that secure, lucrative, meaningful work has never been equally available to all Americans, even amidst the prosperity of the post-World War II era. He also argues compellingly that the shift towards privileging shareholders over employees and short-term profit over long-term prosperity was not inevitable, nor is it irreversible. Jobs are less secure today, not because the market demanded it, but because, starting as early as the 1950s, executives, consultants, and policymakers decided to make them that way. Hyman details the rise of temp agencies and consultancies, as well as the broader political, cultural, economic, and technological shifts that fueled and furthered the move toward insecure work. Listen in as I talk with Professor Hyman about his fascinating work and his ideas about what the path forward might look like for American workers. I'm thrilled to be talking today with Dr. Lewis Hyman, author of Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary, published by Viking Press in 2018. Dr. Hyman, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so before we talk about the book, I first want to congratulate you on the birth of your new baby. Um, I really appreciate your taking the time away from all that cuteness and sleeplessness to talk with me about your newest book. Well, hopefully if I make any sense at all um, or don't make any sense, you'll understand why. It's, it's a good cover. Yes, absolutely. Um, so can you begin by telling us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so my name is Lewis Hyman. I'm a professor of history at the ILR School of Cornell University. I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and I went to graduate school at Harvard to study history, especially labor history. That's great. Now, um, let's talk about Temp. So how did you get the initial idea for this book? Well, the idea for the book actually grew out of my own work experiences. So like many people in the humanities in 2008, I found it hard to find a job after I'd finished my PhD. And so looked around and I found that the place where I could get the most money for my skill set was actually a consulting firm called McKinsey and Company. And to that point, I had never imagined I would go be a management consultant. But, you know, since history departments weren't hiring, I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll try this and see what it's like. I had studied labor history in undergrad at Columbia and then went to study that in graduate school. But I had found in the course of my studies that to really understand 
working ex- working class experiences, I need to understand working class finances. And I sort of backed up into studying business and financial history. My first book was about the history of personal debt. And so given that context, I thought, well, I'll go see if I can do this and we'll see how it goes. And so I applied for this job and it turns out that if you can do a little bit of math and a little bit of reading, um, you're pretty much set up for consulting. So I was excited and I went to my training. They have a month long training um, for people who are not MBAs. And I went to my first day on the job and it was very fancy. I, I showed up in a suit and uh, I sat, walked into a big conference room and I sat down at my computer and I had the stunning realization that, in fact, I was right where I had started because my first job, you know, besides cutting lawns or working with my dad, uh, was actually working as a temp when I was about 15 years old in Baltimore. Uh, before then, I had cut lawns and my dad was an exterminator. So I spent a lot of time in crawl spaces spraying for rats. And it was Baltimore in the summer and I didn't want to be in the heat. So I looked in the newspaper and I got a job as a data entry person for a temp agency. And I went to it and, you know, it was just as bad as what I wrote about in the book. You know, you get treated like an automaton, you're very marginal, it's very boring. And I hated it. And of course, immediately after that, my grades went up in school uh, the following fall. So I'd spent a lot of my life trying to get away from that kind of work. And as I sat down at that big conference table in St. Louis, I realized, oh my God, I'm a temp again, only now I get paid 10 times as much. And that was sort of the origin of this project, sort of thinking about how corporations make use of temps of various stripes from top to bottom, uh, working, you know, seeing how consultants and temps and migrant and un- migrant laborers are all used within, you know, late capitalism. And I haven't worked as a migrant laborer, but for lots of reasons that, you know, are, are obvious that I'm native born and white and male. Um, so that a lot of the book is about exploring those intersections of citizenship, race, and gender alongside categories of work, the remaking of the corporation. And that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but that's that's the story of where the book came from. Oh, that's great. And, and so once you set out to start exploring that, um, what did your research look like? Well, you know, it started with this sort of analytic moment um, at the beginning, trying to think about these threads, which, you know, I knew from seeing my work as a consultant and seeing sort of the history, you know, the, the construction industry in America, I had a vague sense that these were all connected. But of course, when I started looking into the archive in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, there, there really wasn't much of a connection there. And I was terrified, like most people are when they think that their hypothesis has failed. Uh, it wasn't until I got to the 70s and 80s that I started to see these intersections between these three worlds of labor. Uh, and management. So that's that's where uh, the book started. Well, the book really started with reading historiography and um, historians. Um, there's very few, little written about consultants. There's one real good book on it. Um, there was no real um, books written by historians of, of temp labor. And then there's a bunch of books written about um, migrant laborers, but mostly about agricultural migrant laborers. And so one of the things the book does is 
explore these histories that have been done much better by sociologists um, and anthropologists. There's a, a rich literature in sociology on contingent and precarious labor going back decades. And so one of the things that's interesting is to think about why that literature comes into existence um, in the 1980s. So um, for my research, I I did everything historians do, which is I try to do a literature review. And then I began to try and think about what imagine myself into the archives, what kinds of archives would be useful for such an endeavor. And so I tried to find archives that were important for these different kinds of work. So for the consultants, I tried to get into the McKinsey archives. McKinsey wouldn't let me do that. So I had to write around the company in a lot of ways by going to other corporate archives like Citibank, like Hewlett Packard, to try and find uh, where McKinsey had reorganized or reshuffled work or management practices. I also used their publication, McKinsey Quarterly, quite extensively. Uh, to see how people thought about uh, the reorganization of work over time, because that's the advice they were selling for like millions of dollars. You know, uh, this is the how people think how to think about their businesses and how to run them. And then for the temps, um, I was lucky enough uh, through both my help of my research assistant to come across the archive of Elmer Winter, um, and he was the founder of Manpower Incorporated, which gave me a very rich body of text to work with, um, internal documents and speeches, thinking about the nature of work there. And then for migrant workers, um, actually, it was it was very interesting. Historians get very excited about new archives. And most of the uh, literature on, on migrant laborers, especially Mexican uh, migrant laborers, focuses on the Braceros program, which was an agricultural work, uh, guest worker program that existed from World War II through the mid-1960s. And one of the reasons is is that the National Archives has those records available. Um, But I actually went to ICE, um, the INS Internal Library, USCIS Library. And if you go there, um, instead of the records ending in the late 50s, which they do in the National Archives, you find that the records actually persist. And so a lot of the writing in the book that is about um, industrial migrant labor, which I think is essential to understanding the 70s, 80s, 90s um, course of undocumented labor um, is is there. And it turns out that undocumented workers are not just in the fields, they're in the factories. And in fact, every year after 1970, more undocumented workers are apprehended in industrial sites than are apprehended in the fields. And so a lot of an arc of that book is is looking at that and thinking about how um these workers are used within the growth of a new kind of industry that is the electronics industry and thinking about what that means about electronics. Well, I'm really long winded. I hope that was uh, what you're looking for there. Yeah, that's perfect. And I mean, I've never actually been inside a corporate archive, but I have this sort of 1960s image of a whole huge row of um, file cabinets. And and I suspect that's probably mistaken. So what's, what's it like in the um, corporate archives? What was it like combing through those? Oh, well, they vary quite a deal. I mean, some some of them are quite organized, as you would imagine a normal archive with just uh, boxes. Um, one of them, the Associated General Contractors of Houston, which was the association of the contractors in Houston, so the people that employed different kinds of construction workers, which is part of one of the threads of the book. 
you know, they just had a bunch of boxes in the back room and I sort of just, and they, they were throwing them all away. Um, I tried to convince them to donate them to Rice University, which I'm not sure if they did or not, but that was the case. And then of course at Citibank, um, they've subcontracted their archives to an outside firm. This is the case with many major firms, ma- major corporations. Now they've subcontracted to, uh, third parties to manage access, which makes it much harder for historians to get into those records. Wow, that's interesting. I had no idea um, about that outsourcing of those. And then, and of course, it would, you know, sort of tighten access. Um, but it seems like you certainly were able to gather together um, an, just an impressive range of, of primary documents from all of these different um, industries that you write about. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's 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 essential to the historian's project, right? The the archive. This is what makes us different than other disciplines. And sort of reading those primary voices, reading those primary documents to check our assumptions about what happened or how it happened. You know, that happened. That's that's just what we do. So it, it's it was really amazing to see some of these archives. Some of which I don't think other people had really used. So no one had really used the Apple Papers at Stanford, for instance. Um, I think when they had used them, they had used them to see the voices of Steve Jobs or the Waz, but they hadn't used them to look at industrial relations at the first Macintosh plant, for instance, which is a chunk of one of my chapters. That's great. So once you'd finished this research phase, um, what did your writing process look like? And and how do you write? Um, So it's interesting. I, I definitely oscillate between research and writing and going back and forth between those two things. The way, the way I write is uh, I sit with a document. I usually take picture, physical, digital picture. I take physical, sorry. I take digital pictures of the documents in the archives. So a lot of these corporate archives only let you in for a day or two. So you sit there and you just take thousands of pictures. And so what I do is I sit with my computer and then another screen that's open. And I tend to just write as I am reading the documents. So I don't take notes. I just take, I just write full sentences. My feeling is I'm not going to have a better sense of analysis in the future than I am right now. So I might as well just write. And that helps me with my anxiety of confronting a blank page. So when I go to write, it's mostly a process of editing. So I really spend a lot of time with the documents themselves and, and writing on them, as I say, I talk about it. And then, and then I sort of bring everything together. And I write in lots of different places. I write in my house. I write in my office. I write in Starbucks with a little portable screen uh, next to me. So, and I try to write for about four hours a day when I'm writing, which is as long as a human can be creative, I think. And I can edit for longer periods of time, but I can't write much longer than that. Yeah, I think I'm on the same page with you in that regard. Yes. Um, so well, let's turn to the book itself. Uh, you, you open the book by discussing sort of the rise of secure employment, which was not always the norm, even for elite American workers. Yeah. So as historians, I think it's really important for us to historicize things that things that we consider to be normal. Every time we see something is considered normal, we should check our assumptions. And that's certainly part of the nostalgia we have today for the post-war. We imagine that that is the normal experience of American history, which of course people like Jeff Cowie have pushed back against. Now, um, 
this is certainly the story that you and I grew up with as, as children, right? I mean, that, that there was this arc of increasing prosperity and, and it would continue and continue. And suddenly things didn't look that way in the 70s. And for a long time, we thought that was an aberration, that we would return to the normal, which was that post-war experience. And it hasn't been for the entirety of our lives. So one of the things I wanted to do when I opened the book was say, hey, this wasn't normal. This was something that was made. And reposition choice and agency and action to that story of the post-war rather than have it just be a natural consequence of the growth of capitalism, which I think is still very much part of the conversation that we have today about the post-war. So one of the questions I had in writing the book was, how did the seeds of our contemporary insecurity get planted in the midst of post-war security? And you know, how do we make that shift? And there's been lots of very interesting arguments about that, you know, from David Harvey and sort of a brief history of neoliberalism uh, to sort of cultural arguments. You know, we've been debating that turn of the 70s for quite some time now. And so in my account, I really wanted to foreground the people that made the choices to reorganize and really consider who has agency, right? You know, who actually has choice in the remaking of the workplace. And that's part of what I investigated in the history of the corporation and the history of work. Yeah, and well, and from there, you sort of move on to detailing the rise of the temp industry, starting with Manpower, Inc., uh, in the late 1940s. And from the start, you know, I, I like that you identify that temp work was pitched from the beginning as a flexible way for married women to make a little extra cash by helping out in an emergency. But as you argue, that was rarely even then what temp actually temp work actually looked like. Yeah, we have the sense of it being mostly about married white women. Um, but from the start, it had incorporated a, you know, a large number of men, like about 30% of people who worked at um, Manpower were men by 1960, right? So it begins, the story begins with Elmer Winter um, and, you know, the story of why he started Manpower Incorporated. It was for emergency replacement of a secretary. And that's where the business started. And certainly that is still the dominant sense of what a temp is. But he realized that there was a limit to so many times a secretary could be sick. And so he begins to imagine how to replace whole chunks of a workforce. And this is what he tries to sell. And for me, this is an important idea in the book, the selling of ideas. So, you know, one line of argument about neoliberalism is that it starts with economists. And, you know, it's funny because when I read the business literature of this period, I don't see many economists. In fact, the only one I occasionally see is Milton Friedman because he had that TV show. What I do see are consultants and business gurus. And so instead of focusing on those sort of rarefied academic intellectuals, I really focused on the people who actually were selling their ideas, people like Elmer Winter, who spent decades trying to sell the idea of flexible work and a replacement workforce. And what's fascinating to me about this too, is that you often hear that from economists in particular, that it's, it's about transaction costs. It's so much easier today or to click a button on the internet and replace a worker. And that's why work is so precarious. And, you know, it, it's a very compelling story. 
But the problem is that even by the early 1960s, you could call manpower and have them replace all the assembly line workers in your plant, replace all the uh, foremen, everybody. And, And they could do that with just a phone call. And it's hard to convince me that a phone call is that much more arduous than a click for large scale business decisions. Now, and so for me, this really pushes to the primacy of values and um, ways of thinking about how businesses ought to be run. And this is the case in the 1950s and 60s that Elmer Winter kept butting his head against people who ran corporations who thought, hey, I don't want to replace all my workers. Hey, I don't want to destroy the, uh, the way of life for everyone who contributes to my bottom line. And so one of the stories I try to tell is the sort of uh, way that uh, this kind of flexible workforce worms its way into the corporation in the 60s through data entry and the rise of the computer, and then through the crisis of uh, capitalism that comes in 1969, which was called the conglomerate crisis at that point, where the very sense of what a corporation is was reimagined. Well, I really like, you know, you write at one point that the decision to use or not use temps was not only about costs, but about beliefs, beliefs about the proper organization of the labor force. And as you say, I I think that's really important because there's a certain narrative we have of what's led to insecure or precarious work. One, that this is somehow new when, of course, in some ways it's not new at all, but also that it's all about cost cutting. It's all about efficiency and, and of course, it's also about ideology, ideas about what work should look like, about how workers should be treated, about what the role of employers versus employees are. I mean, these are all important cultural ideological concepts, not just um, bottom questions of what's best for the bottom line. Absolutely. I think culture is really important here and ideas. And in a lot of ways, this book is an intellectual history of work in the post-war period. Um, through today. And those beliefs matter so, so, so much. It's, you know, at various points in the book, I check in and see what is the relative cost of a temp versus a permanent worker. And there's always arguments that there's cheaper, but a lot of it seems to be about control. A lot of it is about power. It's about who gets voice in the workplace and not just the story of temps themselves, uh, but the fact that they were there as a yardstick to measure permanent workers, right? And we know this from our own experiences that most people in a workplace are permanent employees, but these outside people, as they're thought of, they're outsiders, um, are used as a threat against other kinds of actions. And it's really only um, in the last 30 years that we've started to see, you know, entire workforces constituted um, as temporary contingent workforces. And it's something I write about in the book, The Rise of That as well. But from the very start, it's about power. It's about a threat. It's about bringing the market back into the stable world of the post-war corporation. Well, and you know, I found the section you write on the history of the consulting industry really interesting as it connects to that subject and also both just independently. It's not something I'd ever read about before. And consulting has been in my orbit a long time, where where I went to undergraduate, a a lot of people moved straight from there into consulting. And yet I didn't know a thing about the roots of the industry. And and you wrote, um, 
Consultants were temps, though highly paid, and they had reconciled themselves to a worldview that accepted that insecurity. And I thought that was an important parallel to make and one that once you say it sounds obvious, but what didn't feel obvious before that. So how did management consulting come to be? And and how do you see it contributing to the decline of steady employment more broadly? Well, I think good history is obvious in retrospect, and it's uh, it's not a field that I think should reward cleverness. But yeah, it's it's so I mean, I, the question I had was thinking about how the people who made the decisions, who advised the corporate leaders on how to run their businesses, you know, how does their experiences of work inform the ideas that they have? And you can see these very close ties. Uh, so the story of consulting, as I tell it, begins with uh, Marvin Bauer, who is not James McKinsey, but basically the guy that takes a small consulting shop that had been industrial engineers coming out of the Taylorist tradition and turns it into something that uh, after World War II or during World War, right in the 1930s and 40s and 50s really helps the modern corporation grow. So we think of the corporation itself as not really having much of a history. And one of the things I try to do in the book is show the way in which the corporation has different moments. And beginning in the 1920s, there is a vision of the corporation as having all these divisions and being run a certain way. And it's something that comes out of Alfred Chandler. Um, The historian Alfred Chandler wrote about this extensively. But corporate leaders had to learn how to do that. And it it was people like Marvin Bauer and his McKinsey consultants that helped them transform themselves, both in the United States and abroad. And so I try to tell that story. almost doing a labor history of consulting um, through the 20th century to try and understand how a group of people would be so okay with insecurity in other people's jobs. And part of it is this ideology of meritocracy, ideology of upward mobility, uh, a belief in sort of project, moving from project to project. So the kinds of things that we now take for granted that people don't have long-term jobs, that they are moving from project to project, that they have to team. Um, the, the language, All the language we have around work today, it comes out of McKinsey and basically this, this guy, who Alvin Toffler, who wrote a book called Future Shock, which sounds goofy today, but was incredibly wide read, wide read in the early 1970s and really set the intellectual stage for the course of work. I mean, terms like project management didn't exist before this. And so the corporation with its hierarchies and its ossified bureaucracies that McKinsey helped set up in the mid-20th century, also they helped take down um, after 1970. And of course, not just McKinsey, but also BCG. And an important part of this story is also the story of accountancies um, like Cooper's LeBrand and Price Waterhouse that shift from places that just do your tax audits to people who install your technology and help you think about your workforces and that complicated dance of technology and work. Yeah, well, I think, you know, one of the interesting things that I think you do throughout your book in in the different topics that you pursue is to sort of keep that focus that you mentioned way back in the beginning of our interview, right? The, The focus on the fact that insecure work may sort of become 
more popular, more pervasive, more seen as sort of the ideal kind of work, but that how that looks really differs across different populations, across different, different industries. And so, you know, from talking about the history of consulting, you, you note that yes, consultants might be temps in some regards, but they're, they're especially well compensated for it. Um, and at the, at the same time, you make sure that we're also thinking about the more marginal temps and, and especially, you know, in, in one particular section, more marginal male temps who aren't pink collar Kelly girls, nor are they these, these pedigreed high paid consultants. So what, what did insecure work start to look like for this population during the time period we're talking about? Yeah, we have this rather flat sense that white men in the post-war had it made, right? That all of them were working unionized factory jobs or had good jobs in offices. But of course, that wasn't the case for them. um, And certainly not for men who were not white, um, which I write about as well. And so thinking about this, thinking about how does this breadwinner ideology intersect? um, How does masculinity, as it's thought of in that moment, intersect with temporary work? And there are these people who are trying to make ends meet. And it's interesting that they're not part of that story. And this is a story that you, you know, you write about, you know, this long history of masculinity in crisis about um, what does it mean when men are no longer worth much in the market, right? This is the Hannah Rosen end of men argument, but we can see this in the post-war as well, that some men are not doing well, um, that met some men are struggling. And so that's why I think it's important to see the story is not just the story of middle-class white women, but understand how the idea of middle-class white women, and it's something that Aaron Hatton's talked about as well. Um, um, this ideology of gender as part of this story, um, as, as part of how we think about this moment, but it's also part of the what we can see the precursors of logistical capitalism, the precursors of Amazon's economy in this moment, as we see temps loading trucks and unloading trucks, working as warehouse workers, um, doing all this sort of moving of goods in the economy. Right. Absolutely. You know, dropping off Amazon packages from their personal cars, sort of this this shift. Yeah, definitely. Well, and, you know, it's not just that we're talking about different kinds of humans, right? We're also talking um, about non-humans. So discussions of, of how work has changed also include conversations about robots, right? These robots who are, quote, taking our jobs. Um, so what role did automation and other technological advances play in expanding and normalizing temporary work? So it's really interesting because the, the best book this is a long struggle within capitalism, right? You know, like the future of robots. So Amy Subix has this great book um, about the early 20th century called um, Inventing Ourselves Out of Jobs. It's, and, it's, and it's about sort of how people have been afraid of machines coming for them. And this is a language of threat that's been going on for a very long time that is in Taylor himself, right? You know, the, the relationship of Schmidt and his machines. So what we see, what I see is, is for me, the question was not do machines take away work, but what is at stake in thinking about machines taking away work? What is at stake in thinking about technological progress um, for workers? And what's interesting to me was that as I read the archives, it seemed that one of the ways in which 
flexible temp workers really made an entree into the workplace was through the transition from paper to bits in the 1960s with the introduction of the IBM 360 and the sort of proliferation of databases and computers. Um, They needed to transfer all that data. And the work was tedious and terrible. So naturally, they didn't want their own employees to do it. And they wanted it to run 24 hours a day. And so they looked to temp agencies to supply that data. And it was this experience, right? So I think one of the things that matters that I see again and again is that experience matters more than reason. That once corporate leaders have this experience of using workers for in this way as an auxiliary outside workforce, they know that it works. They know that they can do it again and again, and, and they go back. Just the same way if you have an experience of going to a restaurant and get a, a good meal, you're like, oh, I'll go there again. But before, you're very suspicious. So I think this is part of the story of how they get this experience. And then certainly after the 1970s, the major growth industry in America was electronics, especially the shift from semiconductors to electronics to computers. And Silicon Valley was seen as the place where capitalism was thriving. So as Detroit was falling apart, Um, and Japan was taking over, really the only place we were pushing back in industrial capitalism was Silicon Valley. So that's where my attention turned to Silicon Valley in the book as a place that was, you know, really growing. Um, And by 1980, it was the, you know, I think the largest component of our GDP. So this was, this is the place I went to look for this new next stage of capitalism and thinking about, well, what happens when a sector is invented alongside these kinds of values? And it's in Silicon Valley that we see other parts of the country learn how to use temp labor, flexible labor in, in new ways. Well, yeah, and I definitely want to talk more about Silicon Valley, but, but before we sort of move um, to what I'm thinking of sort of as the 1980s, you know, it's interesting, you organized the book mostly loosely chronologically. And it was surprising to me when I'm reading, you know, a section maybe just over midway through about the 1960s and 70s that you have a chapter titled The Fall of the American Corporation. And (laughs) and my my first instinct upon reading that was that, you know, American corporations, first of all, have like hardly disappeared. In some (laughs) respects, they're stronger than ever, right? But, But I found really interesting your argument that it was during this period, the 1960s and 70s, um, that, management experts started to argue that corporate institutions, and and I'm going to quote you here, you know, that had provided still stability and growth for decades would need to be torn apart. So what was the logic there? Why did they need to be torn apart? And and what did that process look like? Yeah, it's a fascinating story. And I think it's something that most people are are unaware of. Um, People who lived through the 1960s that are, you know, still with us today, uh, were partying and having a good time or fighting in Vietnam, like they were young people, right? So part of the history of the 1960s that's interesting to me for historians to tell now is the grown-up history, the adult history, the boring history. And that is a history of business. And so we think of sort of the financialization of the economy as a story of the 1980s. But actually, so many of the things like the leverage buyout uh, come out of the 1960s. And it comes out of a time when the stock market was booming, um, and for various reasons of taxation, um, but also reasons of personality and in innovation, there are ways that new kinds of financial instruments are used. 
Um, and so in that, in that chapter, I tell the story of the rise of some of these corporations that were called conglomerates. And conglomerates are different than monopolies or trusts. You know, there's, we talk a lot about today about trust busting, um, but they weren't controlling entire segments of the population. They weren't, uh, I'm sorry, of the of capitalism. They weren't controlling all leather goods or all oil. They were just very big companies that were in many different fields. And the reason for their justification was that they were management experts. And this comes out of this post-war belief in managerial science. This is the moment when people are getting MBAs for the first time in, in, in vast numbers. And corporate management is seen as more of a science. Anyway, into this moment steps a bunch of different people. I write a lot about James Ling following the work of Robert Sobel, who is just a really unacknowledged uh, genius in the history of post-war business. Um, thinking about how they used finance to grow and grow and grow and grow. Um, and they justified this growth publicly through this managerial ideology, this ideology of uh, managerial genius. Well, it turns out that they weren't management geniuses. It turns out they were growing their revenues, but not growing their profits. And this all comes to a head around 1968, 1969, and suddenly the emperor has no clothes. And there's a vast collapse of the biggest companies in America, the ones that had bought out all the old line steel industries and had bought out all the airline companies and all the elect, uh, the uh, you know basic um, industries like aluminum manufacturing. All these have been bought up by these clever wheelers and dealers, and then they were unmasked. And so, in the aftermath of this, there is a almost like a crisis of confidence among business leaders, among managers um, and management thinkers about what is the corporation? What have we done that we thought this was the future? management was that this is the future and we uh, were so, so, so very wrong. And so, and something like 90% of corporations were caught up in this conglomeration craze. In the aftermath of this, there's a broad need to rethink the corporation and reorganize the corporation, frankly, because so many of these conglomerates made no sense business-wise. And so breaking them up beginning in around 1969 that was led by all these consultants. Um, and into this moment, you see new management consultancies like the business, uh, the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, um, step in and have new theories about how corporations should be run and how to think about how to break them up. And all these theories make lots of sense. But all these theories uh, are now focused on trimming the fat of becoming lean, of Small is beautiful, almost echoing the world, the ideas of the hippies of the 1960s. And so ideas that would have made no sense in the post-war, that small business was better and more nimble and more agile and fewer people that are better, right? This doesn't make any sense to people in the post-war uh, who thought of corporations should be big because that's where the resources are. And you want to not look to the market because markets can't be trusted. Markets are unreliable. You want everything in-house. There's a, there's a wholesale shift in how people think about corporations. And then there are the consultants to implement it, both to provide the ideas to help people think through how to do this and then to carry it out. And in the book, I write a lot about Citibank. I write about General Electric um, out of their archives, sort of showing how 
you know, basically capitalist intellectuals, management consultants help them do this transformation. Well, and, and I'm also interested in how this sort of transformation also translates in, in physical ways, right? You describe the new office that sort of results um, from a lot of the shifts you've been discussing. Um, you describe that new office as a factory. So in what ways was it a factory and what was the impact of that refashioning? Well, it's interesting because, you know, as we think about the office, you know, it's also a place of resistance, right? So people try to resist this new space. Um, so in the book, I write a lot about 9 to 5, which was an, an organization of workers in, of women workers in Boston uh, who, who rose up to try and resist this sort of um, animization, the enemy of the workplace you know, because part of what happens is with the rise of computers is that it spreads this sort of dullness of data entry and computers and people feel like they're more of like a machine. And so I write a lot about um, this experience and um, the resistance to that experience in the book. And it's something that, you know, computers were meant to liberate us from tedium, but in fact, they make our lives much more boring and tedious, uh, at least for the people who have to interact with them every day. In that moment, certainly, I think computers are much more fun now than they were in 1975 or 1980. I don't know. I did really like my classic Atari. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so so, so you mentioned um, nine to five, the organization, although you also talk about the film, which I respect. Um, But how, what did those um, efforts to improve temps working conditions, what did those look like? and, And how effective were they? Yeah, so for that part of the book, the archives I really relied on were the archives of 9 to 5, which were at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard. Um, and I also relied on the some oral histories um, and the documents of a group called the Process World Collective in San Francisco, which was an anti-work zine um, of the 1980s and 90s, um, to try and think about how people who were critical of this kind of office work thought about the paths of resistance. And basically, 9 to 5 was actually very successful in certain contexts. They were very successful in universities. They were very successful in finance and publishing. But they sort of floundered when it came to temp workforces. And that failure of organization, I thought, was really interesting. Because these were some of the smartest people thinking about labor in the 1970s and 80s. And they couldn't figure out how to organize a distributed workforce. And this is the crux of the matter, is that temps were not of their workplaces. They were in, but not of their workplaces. They were always on the outside. They weren't part of the, quote, corporate family. Um, So they couldn't make these kinds of social claims on the workplace the way that ordinary workers could. Um, And they also couldn't band together. They didn't see each other. And this is also just born of my own personal experience. I never met any other temps that worked as the temp agency that I worked for, even though I worked there for years. Um, and I knew very few of the consultants that I work for. Um, so the question then is about a distributed workforce, which in many regards parallels the gig economy today, right? Thinking about, well, what are the possibilities for organizing um, a distributed workforce in a non-digital economy? And the answer was pretty bleak. And you see the bleakness in the writings of people um, in 9 to 5, but also in the processed world zine um, who also I did some oral histories of people who were involved with that, the sort of founders and the writers. And it was interesting to see how their sort of radical anti-work take 
uh, played out in the 80s and 90s. And you can feel the sort of um, hopelessness of this sort of radical position in the pre-internet era, that there's no way to communicate with all the different workers in this moment. And of course, worker communication is key. Like today, we have coworkers.org or various digital um, social media platforms, which have, as we know, have been foundational to um, amplifying workers' voice and struggles. So that's that's one of the interesting things about this new distributed workforce and failures of the 70s and 80s and 90s. Well, and, and sort of thinking about that time period, I want to go back a little bit. You had talked about Silicon Valley earlier, and I want, I want to return to that as a subject because this is sort of when we see Silicon Valley and its startup culture entering the picture. And, and you wrote, quote, the story of flexibility in Silicon Valley is not just about the insecurity of the workers on the bottom, but the success of the workers on the top. So, so what was new about the nature of insecure work in, in the sort of Silicon Valley tech industry? So it's really interesting to to look at the history of Silicon Valley. You know, there's a, there's a few good, really good histories of um, Silicon Valley, like the devil in Silicon Valley. But a lot of the histories of Silicon Valley are really the histories of these founders, right? The sort of celebratory hagiographies and biographies of these founders. And I was really interested in thinking about, you know, what did this world look like if I treated Silicon Valley like we've written histories of Detroit or histories of other industrial sites. And so I really tried to go into the archive like Apple and HP and look at sort of mid-level workers and frontline workers and think about their experiences and how their experiences constituted uh, and were part of a different ideology of the West Coast. And what's interesting about this, and this is something that Margaret O'Mara has a piece coming out soon about why there is no labor movement in California, um, that the labor movement in California, obviously there's a labor movement, especially in terms of um, the docks, but there was never, they were never as successful in organizing these factories of the West Coast as they were organizing the factories of the East. And so I wanted to understand what it meant, why Apple and HP never provided the good life for blue collar laborers that you know, Ford and GM had. And part of that story is the story of the industrial structure of electronics, the way it has a much faster turnover rate in terms of technology and products. But a bigger part of that is who's doing the work and how the work is organized. So the workforces are not white, the workforces are not men, Some, and to a large degree, the workforces are non-citizens. And the work is subcontracted in a way that um, we didn't see in earlier kinds of industrial work, uh, both for ideological reasons and sort of just for economic reasons. And so when you look at Silicon Valley that way, when you start with the people who put the machines together rather than start with the people who invent the new product, the story looks quite differently. And I tried to tell that story and narrate it from the top and going all the way to the bottom um, in that account. Well, and, and I like that you know that one of the reasons that it's complicated to tell that story and, and others that you tell around the history of, of insecure work or temporary work is that, you know, so around this time, for instance, temp work, 
temp workers get a new name, right? They're called contingent workers. And, and I'm interested in what you talk about with regard to the significance of that new moniker, right? Because it's sort of foreshadowing this blurriness that persists today between different categories of work. You've got temps and permatemps, contractors, consultants, freelancers, free agents, right? There's this sort of language that is confusing and, and that confusion, I, I, I think, and you argue, right, it has tangible significance. And so I thought maybe perhaps you could talk a little bit about, about how naming works here. Yeah. So Audrey Friedman invents the term contingent worker in the 1980s. And then a whole cottage, as you know, a whole cottage industry of sociologists and economists then argue over defining that term. And it's always so interesting when people try to define their terms, because it's something that, you know, you hear people say a lot in this hyper-modernist way. They're like, well, what do we mean exactly? And I, I get why that's important. And, you know, we should define our terms, but we should also be cognizant of what cultural work term definition does, right? Like who's included, who's excluded? What does it mean when we try to treat um, people the same and try to treat them different? And this, this is part of what the book is about, is about blurring those lines um, in some ways, saying what is the same, what is the different between consultants, temps, and migrant laborers? Um, and for me, this this goes back to Foucault, which is a far cry from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But Foucault, in the order of things, uh, writes that he's writing the history of the same, right? Thinking about sort of different terrains of, of knowledge and how they look the same and are organized the same. And for me, that was also an inspiration for the book, thinking about what is the same between these similarly, these apparently different things. And so what matters, I think, about the invention of this term is that, you know, obviously scholars begin to study it, um, but they also begin to draw lines around who counts as a contingent worker and who doesn't count. And, and that's part of why I think a lot, there is that surprise when you're like, consultants are temps? What? Migrant laborers are temps? What? Um, and I've had people say, they are not. That is not what that word means. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. I know how definitions work. But I think it is that blurriness, right, between worker and contractor, of employee and contractor, that is at the essence of the misclassification debates, right? Because these definitions matter so much for law. And as workers began to rely on the law and unions began to rely on the law to enforce their power, definitions matter a great deal. And so this is why, you know, thinking about this language, um, this is where cultural history and cultural anthropology and cultural analysis in American studies really matters um, for analyzing the history of capitalism. Well, and I think it's also an interesting place where those sorts of disciplines intersect with um, forms of thinking and forms of data that we don't always engage with, right? I mean, you and I are scholars of work, so I think we maybe have to more than than some other people do. But, you know, these these terms, we can sort of take the Foucault approach and, and, and deconstruct their cultural significance and the way in which they are, you know, artily artificially created um, binaries or, you know, concepts of what's normal and what's not. But, but as you know, right, they also have real on the ground significance. It, I think it's important that we really can't count how many workers are temps because we have so many different categories of, of labor for the Bureau of Labor Statistics, for legal purposes, tax purposes, right? We have so many different categories that are temporary in some way, but because, as you say, we don't recognize that commonality, it means that we're not able to um, 
conceptualize them as a group that might have a shared interest in whatever it might be, in whether it's organizing or whether it's changing laws or, or what, whatever it might be, right? That, that those, all, those terms have cultural power and they have legal and statistical power as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really about truth and power, right? The truth of those terms, the, the sort of neatness of those boundaries is, is enforcing or disrupting certain kinds of power whether it's of the state or the, the, the corporation or the, you know, the law, you know, thinking about the, the sort of neatness of those boundaries is really crucial. And, but like you said, it's not enough to just be like, Oh, look how clever I am. I can use the phrase biopower um, or governmentality or some other sort of Foucauldian name drop. It's important to see how that blurriness or primness of the line actually affected the lives of real people and real organizations. And that's something I try to do um, throughout the book. Um, but it's, it's tricky. And it's, some, it's a tricky thing to talk about what matters is, are the number of gig workers, you know, 1% or 10% or 40%? And reasonable people disagree, right? Um, and so I think what's important is to, even in this post-modern age, to not, to not sort of, people have this when they talk about numbers, they tend to sort of come back to this modernist obsession with categories and uh, counting without being critical about them. And I think it's so important for all of us these days to be critical about data and how we think about data and how, how those numbers work. Well, and sort of as a side note, I was talking with my students about exactly this, talking about this, this point around, um, you know, I, I gave them a little bit of, of what you wrote on contingent workers. And then we talked about other names um, that are similar, other types of work that overlap. And they, you know, they pointed out to me that um, I was forgetting hustler, right? Like the hustle, that they mm. hustle. And this is a term that that they would use often to describe themselves as students who are also workers, often workers in multiple jobs simultaneously, right? That they're they're gig workers, they're hustlers, they're they don't think of themselves as contingent, right? But that this this language is ever evolving and that the way in which it evolves, that that, that matters too. Yeah. And then, you know, contingent uh, also has a sense that this is peripheral, right? This is peripheral to the corporation. And one of the arguments I make is the sort of ever greater centrality of these kinds of workers to the operation of, you know, successful corporations and, you know, redrawing that boundary of what's inside and outside, but the outside matters. The outside is actually foundational to the operation of the firm, you know, whether that's in logistical deliveries or in, in you know, you know, in terms of FedEx or intellectual leadership in terms of management consultants. But yeah, this is, this is, uh, in, you know, it's also a question of how workers describe themselves. Like you said, this shared fate, like, um, like Margaret Levy has written about this question of what do we have in common? Right. And it's easy to draw those lines between us, but really the, the comp thing we have in common is this insecurity, not just of, um, as opposed to just inequality. Um, we have this volatile experience of income in this country that largely goes unacknowledged. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's, it's, it's critically important to talk about and think about. Absolutely. Now, you also write um, about the recession of 1991 and its, its so-called jobless recovery. And, and you argue that that represented a break from the past and, and that it's really a key turning point in the history of insecure work. Um, so in what way? I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, the, the recession of 1981 is so interesting for me because in my first book, um, which was about the history of personal debt, 
It's after 91 that you really see securitization take to the field, take to the market, so that personal debt really blossoms um, under this credit card debt and different kinds of asset-backed securities. And so, and that was really one of the reasons I came to this book that, you know, after writing about financial insecurity and financial practices, I wanted to understand the work that sort of gave rise to that, those financial insecurity and financial practices. And you see it in the recession of 1991 as well. So before 1991, the standard model of recessions was true, that during recessions, people would lose their jobs. And then after, when the recovery came back, corporations would hire those people back. And this is just part of how it worked. Well, after 1991, every recession we've had around 91, around 2000, 2008, workers were not hired back. They were let go, um, but they were never rehired. And so you have a growing number of people who are just either dropping out of the workforce entirely, especially after 2000, 2008. But you also have corporations saying, well, instead of hiring workers back into full-time traditional employment, let's just hire them through temp agencies. Let's just hire them as contractors. Let's hire them as consultants. Let's figure out a way to not really hire them back because the headlines look so bad when we fire them all. And also it gives us more control. And also maybe it's cheaper. So all these things are true after 91. Um, and so our sense that things can do get better after recessions, while true for the stock market and for GDP, is not true for a broad swath of working America. And what's interesting about 91 as well, this is where it intersects with your work nicely, I think, is that we see the sort of, quote, deindustrialization, a term that, you know, isn't talked about that much anymore, but used to be a mainstay of the literature, um, where the blue-collar workers are losing their jobs in the 70s and 80s. Well, in, 99, in the 90 recession, we get downsizing. And it's when the full brunt of this world is laid to bear on white-collar workers. Um, and we see that downsizing just becomes the new normal um, after that moment. Right. And, and talk about another um, type of action that has a lot of different names, you know, thinking about downsizing, right sizing, job elimination, layoffs, firing, a whole other category that, that Foucault would have a field day with. <laughs> um, but so, you know, although the whole book is, is at core about gig work, right? Um, even though that wasn't the term people were necessarily using, but later in the volume, you do turn directly to the sort of gig work that we talk a lot about today, right? Work made possible by digital labor platforms like Upwork, Craigslist, Etsy, Fiber, Uber, um, Lyft. So how do these new technologies figure into the, the rise and impact of insecure work? Yeah, so this gets back to the, one of the main questions of the book is, is this story of insecurity one of technology or one of organizational choice, right? Um, and the story we have of these gig labor platforms is that they are technology-driven. They are app companies. This is how we talk about them, right? They are two-sided markets driven by apps. Well, they're not, right? They're, they're the consequence of a long history of rethinking how work should be organized. The idea that you should be able to hit a button and hire somebody is a lot of cultural work has gone into that to making that seem normal. Um, and part of it is, you know, this when I was writing the book, from, I started writing it in 2011, and I finished writing it in 2017. 
the the narrative that was happening around this kind of uberification of the economy was that that Uber was causing this, that Uber uh, was destroying traditional work. Uber was the reason why things were getting so bad. And I was like, no way, that's crazy. People only drive for Uber because of the alternatives they have, right? And so in that moment of Uber, there was an erasure of Starbucks. There was an erasure of the service economy. That Uber was only possible because the rest of the retail economy was so bad for working people. And so in that chapter, I I saw it both as a, a moment of reflection on how things had gotten bad for some people um, and the way in which they've been reduced to commodities and widgets. But also there seem to be moments of opportunity thinking back to that nine to five question about distributed workforces organizing um, and people finding opportunities. So, you know, and for me, the real break is between whether or not the platform sets your price or whether you set your price. So Uber sets your price, right? And you are a commodity. Um, Instacart sets your price and you are a commodity. But, you know, for things like Etsy and Upwork, there were stories of people actually making better lives for themselves. Um, You know, and I think a lot of that has been erased because of gender. Uh, So that the story of the internet is the destruction of traditional male jobs. Um, But those jobs are, you shouldn't worry about that. Those jobs have long been gone. They've been gone since 1991 or 1981, depending on whether you're blue, white collar or blue collar. But we also see women are, especially rural women, are making a lot of this new digital platforms, uh, especially Etsy. So right, the last time I checked, 700,000 people who are nearly all women um, are making a full-time living, what they consider a full-time living on Etsy. And to me, that's kind of exciting. I mean, I know that People have read the book and uh, poo-pooed the sort of optimism in that turn. But I also think that there is something really exciting about people finding autonomy and self-direction. And I also think there's something really interesting about the possibility of more formal union organizing against people, organizations like Amazon, um, that, you know, Amazon has actually given in and capitulated to its workforce much more quickly than Walmart ever did um, in terms of giving the fight for 15. And we it's much more successful. And part of that has been the fact that they are much more centralized, that they you can shut down one of these distribution centers in a way that unions never really got to organize uh, Walmart's retail stores and never really organized their distribution centers. And so I think there's, um, there's moments of hope here uh, in this distributed economy and this... Um, flexible economy for thinking about how workers' voice and workers' power can be regained. Well, and I, I really think that's one of the most, um, you know, sort of exciting parts of this book is that you you ask what comes next, right? You write, um, and I'm quoting you, just as our business and policy leaders made choices to bring about this insecurity, we are at a moment when we can once again choose to remake our economy. And I, I think that's an important thing that this book does is to to demonstrate, you know, from from the introduction, from the very beginning, you're emphasizing this was not inevitable, this was not accidental, this is not the you know um, natural result of technological development, right? This is the result of of human choices, and and that that opens up the possibility that things might might change. And, and so I, I wondered, what uh, do you see as our options moving forward? And, and if you had to, which would you put your money on? 
Well, I mean, technology constrains our options, but there are options and we can make different futures. Um, you know, concrete was poured into rebar the same way in the Soviet Union as it was in the United States, but had very different experiences, right? Um, we see right now that there is another internet forming in China that has very different values than our internet, right? So technological determinism is very dangerous because it makes it seem inevitable um, what the future holds. So I think that there are lots of places where people are beginning to think, how do I use digital platforms to organize, right? You know, like I mentioned earlier, coworkers.org, which has organized something like 20% of Starbucks employees. Um, you also see things like the National Domestic Workers Alliance, which is trying to figure out how to bring portable benefits to domestic workers, which had traditionally been left out of traditional labor unions. Um, you see Upwork um, or Etsy, which is connecting rural workers with good jobs in big cities that are too expensive to live in. Um, I think there's lots of ways. Platform cooperativism. So this is something that Trevor Schultz has been very um, important about thinking about how, what would happen if Uber was owned by the workers themselves, right? Um, or had those interests at heart. So this is something that we can support. We can support people thinking about portable benefits and new forms of the corporation and new forms of work. And for me, one of the fundamental breaks about this moment is the platform. The platform is unlike the corporation before, because the very first time Individuals can buy and sell globally. They can contract globally. They can identify globally. And on one hand, that could be a race to the bottom. And certainly that's one argument um, about it and certain kind of work. That will be the case. But there's other kinds of work that are more skilled, more culturally bounded. Um, the fact that certain people speak English and are American matters a lot. That's actually a skill set for talking to people who speak English and are American. And it'll be true in other countries as well. So I think this is part of the readjustment to this new economy. How do we bring that productivity to bear for all of us? Um, and productivity has always been a political question. Um, who gets it? Who gets the returns on technological progress? And that's something that, but it's something we have to demand. Um, workers have to demand for themselves. Citizens have to demand for themselves. And I think for me, the big question about this is how do we do that without retreating to a kind of nativism, a kind of nationalism, a kind of tribalism? Because so much of the security that was delivered to white men in the post-war was because they were white men. And creating a more inclusive future will be hard um, because there's lots of people that want to divide us rather than want to emphasize our shared uh, fate uh, as we move forward in this economy. And so, you know, there's a lot of ways we can think about that in terms of climate um, and other things. But of course, that is that is the hard part. And that part is the cultural challenge. And that cultural challenge is much harder than the technological challenge. Technology is easy. It works where you type it. But that cultural shift, that imagination of self, imagination of who matters and who doesn't matter, that's a much harder uh, nut to crack. And, you know, will take much more time and effort to bring about. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's really powerfully put. And, and I really appreciate you giving our listeners such a full sense of, of your book and its arguments and its implications. Um, so I guess now I'd, I'd like to ask, what was the hardest part of writing this book? 
oh, I think it was figuring out what to put in and what to leave out. You know, there's so many different stories that I encountered, or I always felt like that there was more I could do research on. I had a whole stream of research on janitors, for instance, that I'd left out of the book. Um, I had a whole stream of research on the ideology of computer programming um, and sort of just say, how do I bring this back to a main thread um, with characters? And I tried to have characters that I could hang certain moments on with while being true to the history and, but to really use characters to convey structural change. And that for me, that's very, very difficult. It's very easy to be like talking about structures and, you know, the broad sweeps, but to boil that down to that mid-level of organizations like corporations and unions and then down to individuals and to connect those levels all up while, you know, doing it with paper from 60 years ago, that, that was really hard uh, to tell that story as opposed to the last chapter, which was very easy to write because I just interviewed some people um, and um, used some documents. And for me that you could ask them the questions you wanted answered, but to, for historians, it's, it's always hard because the people don't write down the answers you want exactly. And so trying to figure that out is, is quite challenging. So then what was your favorite part of the book to write? Oh, I think the most fun part for me was actually interviewing the people in the Process World Collective, especially Dennis Hayes, um, Chris Carlson. Um, it was such a breath of fresh air to read the zines of the 1980s and 90s, which were critical of the course of capitalism rather than most of the time I was reading things like McKinsey Quarterly or you know the Wall Street Journal or um, the papers of various business th- thought leaders. And they were like, this is all crap and lies. <laughs> and they called BS on all of it. And so I thought that was incredibly satisfying. And But it was also terrifying that people were like, yeah, this isn't working and there's nothing we can do. And it made me sad. It made me sad to think that for a whole generation of, of people, they were fully aware of what was happening and they had no idea what to do. And so part of what I wanted the end of the book to be was saying, hey, there's stuff we can do. Um, and we can think about it. In fact, some people are doing it. A lot of people are trying to make this world change in a better direction. So for me, that that was the story. Um, and it was, you know, it was really satisfying for me too to write um, the history of Apple in a new way because I think it's one of our most storied companies. And to write Apple from the bottom up, uh, I think, really changes that narrative we have about Silicon Valley. Yeah, well, and, and you you may have already sort of touched on it there, right? But but if readers take home only one thing from your book, what would you want it to be? Oh, that we have choice over our future, that we live in a digital age, but we have the decision to make what we want of the digital age, that the industrial age, um, the factory of the industrial age was a great place to lose an arm and get poor for most of its history. It only became a place that we're nostalgic for now for good jobs and good work because we made it that way through unions, through laws, most importantly, through shared values about what the corporation should look like and how work should be organized and who deserved a share of that. And it wasn't perfect, right? It wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. People were left out. But I think it also gives us a sense of how we could imagine a more inclusive future going forward. Well, thank you, Lewis. It's been a real pleasure talking with you today. And before I let you go, what do you think your next project will be? Oh, it's really, it's been great talking about the book with you. Uh, I hope I made sense despite having baby brain. <laughs>
Um, I think my next project is probably going to be, uh, I'm thinking a lot now about climate and how climate change is needs to be stopped. Um, so I'm thinking about a book called Carbon Abolitionism and thinking about how we ended the great immorality of the 19th century capitalism, which was slavery and what that can, the lessons from that that can tell us about how to end carbon in the 21st century. Well, I definitely like that title. And so I will, um, I will look forward to reading that book. Thanks so much and have a wonderful day. Thanks, you as well. This is Carrie Lane, a host of the New Books in American Studies channel of New Books Network. You've been listening to my interview with Lewis Hyman, author of Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary. 